What were we talking about today? <laughs> hmm. Really, what, what are we talking about today? <laughs> Sex in the sanctuary. Uh, doesn't feel like the sort of conversation my grandfather ever envisioned his grandson having, but, but it's important to be able to broaden the conversation around sex to sexuality as part of God's great design for human beings. It was God's idea, after all. What a great idea. Yay, God. Way to go. One of your better ones. Um, But the trouble with the word sex on its own is it tends to refer, in most people's minds, only to an activity. A series of actions that can be either sacred or perverse, either welcome or ruinous. Sexuality has something more to do with identity, with value. Uh, It is sacred. It is God-breathed. It is every bit as important to who we are as a conversation about soul or strength. I want to take you in... uh, in the headlines to a story that has been probably front and center in our newspapers. It uh, made the front cover of Time magazine uh, over the past few years, and it's involved the sexual behavior, particularly of one key Hollywood persona, but has swept up lots of others in it. And it uh, has involved the stories of a myriad of women now who have been harassed and assaulted and threatened and demeaned. And the sentencing came down this week, and I'm talking about Harvey Weinstein. When the story broke, one person encouraged other people who had been assaulted to respond with two words that were kind of mashed together into a Twitter handle. And at the words, Me Too, there soon were over 500,000 people who had gathered together to tell their story. And I say this because I don't want a conversation around sexuality just to be about candles and wine and roses. It's grape juice, by the way. It's a little early in the morning. (laughs) I say it because I know some of you that are listening to the message today have been there, and those are your words too. Me too. And if that's you, I'm, I'm glad that you're here today. It takes some courage. I'm glad that you're here because we want to be able to say together that there can be healing and that there needs to be justice and that it's not your fault. It is, it is not your fault. Part of what's been so disorienting for many people is that, that sometimes those who've been caught up as, as the perpetrators in this wave now of violence have been brought to the light are those who publicly seem to have advocated for things like gender equality and empowerment for women and 
And they had an ideology that was just completely out of odds with this hidden life. And so this week there was another really disturbing allegation that came to light when the, the members of the L'Arche community came forward publicly and acknowledged a pattern of serial sexual abuse in their founder, in the life of Jean Vanier, recipient of the Templeton Prize, a companion of the Order of Canada, a man who was renowned for his compassionate advocacy for the lowest and the least and, and for the rights of all people. And it just sent shockwaves, particularly through the church. Closed doors, abused power, silenced, shamed, but, but so many like them, entertainment figures, political leaders in the highest echelons of power, academic leaders, and, and tragically, church leaders too. I'm only going to be able to keep this on for a couple more minutes because it's, it's really hot, but uh, I was thinking about Hugh Hefner this week. <laughs> you know who Hugh Hefner is? How do you know who Hugh Hefner is? Who said that? Oh. You went where? No. <laughs> Man, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say this. I only read it for the articles. <laughs> he died just a couple of years ago. He was 91 years old. But whatever your age, realize that the movement that was popularized with him has swept through our culture so that now explicit images are only ever a click away. And he was the original poster boy for that. You know, a few years ago, Lee Strobel actually interviewed Hugh Hefner at the Playboy Mansion, and he shared the gospel with them. And Lee said that Hugh was genuinely interested. He said that he believed in God, but, and this is the quote, he believed he had a minimal belief in a minimal God because he wanted minimal interference from God. And all that got me thinking again about, about the prevailing sexual ethic in our day. These days, I, I wonder, I mean, our workplaces, our schools, they're ever vigilant about a particular ethic that's out there. It's my, what probably should be, and, and rightly is called, the ethic of consent. What is it that constitutes good behavior in the sexual arena? It's when consent is acknowledged and when it's given. And when it's not, we know it's not just wrong, it's actually, it's heinous, it's evil to violate consent. And the reason that it's wrong, well, it gets to this thing that we've been talking about for several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. You have a kingdom. The kingdom is the boundaries of your life where what you say goes. Your body is the place where God intends your will to reign. So when another person uses your body for their purposes to satisfy their appetites, they're violating your kingdom and it can shatter a soul. And so the violation of consent is, is just an evil. But it's also why power and the assertion of will are so closely, so intricately connected with sex. They're so delicately and dangerously woven together that it raises this really deep question. It's the question that Jesus is going to surface in the passage we'll look at today. What kind of person do you need to be? What kind of person do you need to be to cultivate the habits of will and discipline 
to be capable not just of honoring consent, but to be capable of honoring the deeper ethic that Jesus is promoting. And we're going to get to that. Because we know it's possible for a person, even, even a bright person, even a brilliant person, even a powerful person, to become absolutely enslaved by desire. It happens all the time. In fact, it, it probably happens to each of us in different ways in our lives. And that's, that's why it's possible for people to embrace an ideology, maybe be progressive supporters of, of things like a, a strong sexual ethic, supporters of gender equality, but then in your private behavior, Betray the ideology that you claim to believe in. Desire turns you into a lost soul. And then maybe eventually, in some cases, into a predatory monster. Another question you might think about, just before we get to the text. What sort of spiritual formation do you think men like Harvey Weinstein or Hugh Hefner received? Because everybody receives something. I mean, everybody is having their inner life, their, their thought life, their desires, their intentions formed and shaped all the time, for better or for worse, on purpose or by accident. What we're learning in this series is, is that following Jesus is meant to offer us the greatest opportunity ever offered to human beings, and that's to apprentice ourselves to Jesus, to place our formation in the hands of the one person who not only understands life in its abundance and its fullness, but is able to take his people by the hand and guide them through the darkest places into the light. And with that, Edmund, I think I'm going to ask for a little more light in here. Is that all right? Okay, and I'm, I'm done with this for now. Last week, last week if you're here, we looked at what the kingdom of God might look like when it comes to the question of anger and reconciliation. We've been working on it this week. Here's the teaching for today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. Let's read those words. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, the big questions that Jesus is raising in the Sermon on the Mount. The first one, what is the good life? What does it look like? That's the word blessed. Blessed means the good life. When you say, God bless you, you're saying, I want God's very best for you, the good life for you. And Jesus addresses that, but then he goes on systematically to say, what's a good person? What does a good person aspire to be? What's their inner life like? What's their outer life like? How are the two related? And so we come to this section when he says, well, what does it mean to be a good person when it comes to sexuality? And I guess the common thought today would be a good person is someone who honors consent. That's sexual goodness. You honor and respect consent. 
in a sense that's not that distant from, from where, where people started in Jesus' day, because they often thought like this. In the Ten Commandments, you have number seven there, forbids adultery. So the people who commit adultery are bad. The people who avoid adultery are good. That's great. We have the dividing line easily enough. Now you'll notice in this text, Jesus is addressing men. The idea of a power differential between the sexes is not something that was invented in our day. But we'll talk about the double standard when it comes to this area of our ethic. This was an explicit part of This is ancient Roman law speaking to men. It goes like this. You catch your wife in adultery, you may put her to death without a trial. But if you should commit adultery, she cannot presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. I know that Karina was more than a little bit apprehensive about this message. What, what are you going to say? But I can imagine her saying when she hears me read that at the 11 o'clock service, not you, buddy. <laughs> Jesus doesn't allow what the Romans allowed. He actually counters it. He doesn't say what a lot of people in that day and this day often say. If a man lusts after a woman, well, maybe in some sense it must be her fault because maybe she dressed in a provocative way. Maybe she did something. Kingdoms are systems of personal power, and people who have power will abuse those kingdoms to protect their reputation, to gratify their lusts. We see that in all kinds of kingdoms today. Powerful people, powerful corporations. Jesus says, not okay. For Jesus, lust is always the responsibility of the one who lusts. And this idea of looking lustfully that Jesus talks about is really important often misunderstood. So let's, let's unpack it for a few minutes. Let's, let's look at it together. Have a look at the scripture there. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, I'm going to take you back to grammar class, and I'm going to acknowledge that I never paid attention in grammar class because I never thought it would be important. But it turns out that sometimes it is. When Jesus says that, he's using a tense of the verb. Are any English teachers here? Good, so I'm going to make this up. No, I'm not making this up. He uses the present participle. So really, if you're translating it, the idea would be whoever looks and goes on looking. That's the participle. It's an ongoing action in the present. Jesus is not saying that sexual attraction itself is a bad thing. It was God's idea. Sex is good. Say that with me. Sex is good. Some of you can't even say it. Try it again. Sex is good. You won't go to hell for saying it. It's okay. It's very good. God is pro-hormones. Jesus is pro-sex. But our sexuality is part of who we are, whether we're single or married, young, old. It's a constant source of mystery and wonder, and I hope joy, wherever you are in life. I was standing on, uh, on a packed subway not too long ago, just before Christmas. I had a lot of bags. And I looked down, and there was this young woman, uh, seated next to me, um, attractive. I was standing over her. She looked up at me. She gave me the look. And I thought, uh, I still got it. <laughs> she said, sir, would you like to take my seat? <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I never had it. I never had it. Jesus is not saying, he's not talking about noticing people that are attractive to you. 
He's talking about somebody who deliberately indulges sexual gratification by continually looking. Talking about what we often call the look. And you know the look, right? A couple are at a restaurant. Waitress is there serving them. Beautiful. Beautiful. And he's staring at her. I mean, it's just, he's fixated. And he's doing it in a way that it's absolutely clear what his desires are. You can see it in his face. The woman, ser- woman serving him knows. Guys, they know. They know where your eyes are. They know. And whether she feels awkward or embarrassed or maybe tempted, I don't know, with a certain sense of power that it brings, people know. And the one who knows most is the man's wife because she sees it. and She's crushed by it. She feels rejected because of it. She's angry. If she talks about it, he's going to deny it. So he adds lying on top of his sin, and it damages the marriage, and it dents his integrity. And he thinks, well, maybe he's okay because he hasn't violated the seventh commandment. It's not adultery. He's not taken the big exit from the marriage yet. He hasn't stepped out of the kingdom. Anybody have any idea what I'm talking about here? Am I just making it up? The look. It's a public act with public effect. Jesus knew all about it. In fact, let me do this. Let me, let me pause here. Sexuality is something that just involves so much emotion. Embarrassment, shame, hiddenness, pretending. We have to lead the way into a different kind of honesty. There has to be a stepping into the light. So we're going to do a kind of a mass confession here. Now you're terrified, but never thought you'd do this in church. We're going to do this together. If you feel that you have ever committed a sexual sin of any kind, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. If you've ever looked at something you shouldn't have looked at and you know it, if you've ever flirted with the wrong person, if you've ever given the look, if you've ever inappropriately tried to solicit the look, if you've ever cultivated feelings just of shame and woundedness because you feel unattractive, you've been made to feel unattractive, if you've ever withheld sex from your spouse as a way of expressing anger, if you've ever failed to talk to your kids helpfully about sexuality, if you've ever carried regret from the past and the future, if you've ever felt for a single moment that you could use some help from God about some area of sexuality, all the hands are down. If you've ever said the word sex, raise your hand. Okay. Just to be clear, on the other side are those who I guess believe that they have achieved some kind of perfection, sexually speaking. Jesus is talking about something here far deeper than consent. You might think about it this way. I found this very helpful this week. We bring to any relationship three different dimensions. We bring our commitment. That's an act of the will. Something that we will. We bring our emotions, all the feelings we have for another person, and we bring our bodies. Each of those things. Our commitment, our emotions, and our bodies. 
Those three dimensions need to be in balance, in harmony with each other. That seems to be what the biblical teachers are getting at. Sexual intimacy is God's great invention to unite together two souls. It is the ultimate form of physical intimacy. Marriage is the public declaration of a permanent, exclusive commitment. It's a promise. It's the ultimate form of commitment. Now here's the key thing. is to make promises with your body that you are withholding with your will. Let me say that again. You're making promises with your body that you are withholding with your will. And you're setting yourself up for hurt. It will damage a soul. If you're following Jesus, let me... Let me say this as tenderly as I know how. If you're following Jesus and you're involved in sexual intimacy with a person to whom you are not married, you need to think not just about what you're offering, but what you're withholding. And you need to take that to God. To be clear, Jesus is defining goodness in the sexual arena in a way that goes far deeper than just consent. And it's far broader than just not having sex with somebody that I'm not married to. All of us need help with what's going on inside. So how do we get it? Here's where Jesus gets really provocative. This is the stuff that, honestly, it's a head-scratcher for most people. Have a look, verse 29. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, do what? Gouge it out. Ouch. Doesn't that sound just a little bit extreme? Jesus isn't hiding this. He's emphasizing it. He doesn't just say any old eye. He says the right eye. Because in the days of the Bible, the right side was always the side of honor. This is the good side. Photographer is shooting you. Get me there. It's my good side. He doesn't say if it's a problem, get an eye patch or gently remove it. No, he says gouge it out. Not just that, gouge it out, throw it away, because maybe you'd be tempted to put it in a jar somewhere. That was my eye. Or maybe have it re-implanted sometime later. What's he saying? He's engaging in in a kind of hyperbole. But the idea is that we need to take our obedience to God seriously. Really, really seriously. And of course, not that seriously, right? Some people have taken Jesus literally on this. There's an early Christian, a man named Origen, who wrestled so much with his sexuality, so much with guilt and shame, that he had himself castrated. I don't think that's what Jesus is recommending. But what he is doing is using very dark humor to show that goodness is something far more than just sin avoidance. You might think of it this way. If the goal of human beings is just to avoid sinful actions, we could do it through surgery. Cut out your tongue. You'll never speak a harsh word again. Cut off your hands. You can't use them for promiscuity or violence or theft. Gouge out your eyes. That'll solve your problem with pornography. You'll never start judging people by their looks. You'll stop giving the look. Cut off your legs. You won't walk into the wrong places. Massage parlors, adult bookstores, the wrong house. 
cut off your ears and you'll never listen to the seductive words that enslave your soul. Maybe we should do that. Lots of churches offer membership. Rochelle, maybe we should offer dismembership. Discipleship through dismembership. (laughs) Understand, Jesus is making an important point here. That God's will is not just sin avoidance. You know, in Jesus' day, there was a group of rabbis who decided that the way to avoid adultery was the way to avoid looking at a woman. If you don't see one ever, you couldn't lust after one. So whenever a woman came into the line of sight, they would close their eyes. No matter what they were doing, where they were going. I'm not making this up. They were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. Because they were always falling off curbs and walking into buildings. and They'd close their eyes so as never to look at a woman. The parts of your body were given to you by God. Not primarily for sin, but to do good. The real problem with growth by by selective dismemberment, is that it just doesn't work. The problem is not your eye, and the problem is not your hand. The problem, Jesus names it right there in verse 28. Have a look. What's the problem? Your heart. That innermost place, the core of who you are. That secret place where your spontaneous thoughts and desires and perceptions are fermented. That's what needs to change. That's what God wants to change. If I live for desire, I end up the slave of desire. And when it goes unchecked, if you notice that desire always has a way of narrowing our vision? If I want illicit gratification from this woman, I have to keep a thousand different thoughts out of my mind to do it. I have to forget that she's somebody's daughter. I have to forget that if a man ever looked at one of my daughters that way, I'd go ballistic. I have to not think about my wife. I have to not think about my children, about my church, about my God. Desire does that. It just tunnel visions you. That's why generals and politicians and CEOs get fired for sending flirty texts to the spouses of other workers. How does that happen? Desire, it keeps a thousand thoughts out of your head and focuses you on on that one terrible thing. Gang, here's the good news. There is, aren't you glad there's good news? Because you're thinking, why did I come here today? This has been terrible. Other than the chocolate. There's freedom. There's freedom. When you come into the light in the area of sexuality, there's freedom. And again, I want to say this as tenderly as I know how. Some of you are dreading this topic. You've been dreading the whole message because you're carrying guilt or shame or a boatload of regret. There's freedom. And there is grace for anyone who will come honestly to God and step into the light. And there are some of you who are listening this morning and you've been hiding and and you're overcome with shame. Even right now, there's healing. There's freedom. Whatever's going on in your life, I want you to hear that there is healing, there is hope, and there is help. When you get to the end of your life, you can look back, and you'll look back in the history of lots of things, maybe your sexual struggle and hiddenness and constant temptation and guilt and shame. You can try and go it alone. 
and you can limp back and forth between giving in and, and then praying and, and being strong and then giving in again. And you can hide all your secrets away in a dark place. And you can have your ability to worship freely and joyfully and pray constantly. You can have all of that impeded risk and your integrity at risk. Or you can just pray this prayer. And you can pray it right now. God, I need your kingdom to come into this part of my life right now. God, I need your kingdom right now. And you surrender your will. That's not enough. That will not be enough. You're going to need help with this one. You're going to need a trusted brother and sister. You're going to need a skilled therapist. You're going to need one of the many, many groups that are meeting all throughout this city, working together with Jesus for recovery from sexual addiction. Whatever it is, you start by praying, God, I need you in this. And then you need to go to somebody else and say, I need you to help me with this. Folks, you've heard us say this again and again, that we want our church to be a place where everybody feels welcome. One of the ways we do that is by saying nobody's perfect. And we hold up the promise that anything is possible. But, but that's only true as long as we're willing to do one thing. And that one thing is to get real about our lives. We have nothing to hide. I mean, everybody is only one bad decision away, right? We're a train wreck apart from God. Ever felt like that in your life? But if you're willing to admit that and then arrange your life around God, you can look back at the end of your life and celebrate a life of devotion to God and freedom and healing and growth. And we get to form together here at MCBC a community of men and women who've learned to be honest, even about their sexual struggles, to take their sexual shame, to honor each other as brothers and sisters, to follow this magnificent Jesus who enables us to handle the greatest of life's difficulties so that His kingdom comes into our lives. Let's do that. I mean, can't we? Let's take that road. And the first stop is right here. Because unless you can take all of it, the shame, the addiction, the guilt, the questions, unless you can take it here, place it before Jesus and say, heal me of that because I want to experience the sacredness of sexuality as a gift. It doesn't matter what the next stop is. First stop is here. But it's not the only stop. Find a pastor. Find a small group leader. Find a counselor. You can go outside of this church if it feels too vulnerable, but find someone. It's too beautiful a thing to go to waste. It's too precious a part of who God made you to be to see it wither away in shame. I'm going to pray together.
of the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, they don't seem to have anything that's off limits. They encompass every part of our lives, even the parts that feel absolutely private. What business have we in the church to talk about the bedrooms of our people? God, we need you in the secret place, in the quiet place. We need you working to to draw us from the darkness into the light. We need freedom. Some of us need it quickly. God, through your Holy Spirit, would you come into the lives of these men and women and bring that healing, that courageous touch, that, that impulse for change that only comes from you. We want to walk into the light. We want to do it together. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible. Jesus, let it come. We pray in your name. Amen.